Hi, and thank you for tuning to the Fight Zone podcast. In this episode, I talk with Jake Smith from Fight and Talk. Jake is a sport journalist covering the MMA sport in the UK, Ireland, and the IMMF. For insight of ever evolving fight scene in this part of the world, follow his Fight and Talk show at Facebook, Fight and Talk, Twitter, and Instagram, Fight and Talk, and YouTube. All links in the description. We talk about the consequences of the extended lockdowns in Europe over the amateur and professional sports, measures promoters are taking to create bubbles and keep going with shows, and athletes' pathways from grassroots to professional level. Having a professional journalist on the podcast, the whole conversation, the phrase, who interviews the interviewer, was pushing me smiling. At least having Jake talking from the UK guarantees this time at least half of the people in the episode do not have heavy Eastern European accent. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Why do we fight? To protect home and family. To preserve balance and bring harmony. For our kind, the true question is, what is worth fighting for? The Fight Is All podcast. Okay, we're on. Uh, Thanks for having the time. At least we got it right this time. And... uh, can you please start with uh, uh, some of your background, how you got involved in the combat sports, and uh, after this, how you get involved in IMMF? Yeah, absolutely, Sev. Um, so my combat sports sort of journey, if you like, started back when I was at university. Um, I was studying sports journalism at the University of Sunderland in the UK, um, and it was we were told by our lecturers from a very early stage, look, everybody wants to be a football or soccer writer. So try and find a unique sport or something that is a little bit different. And um, one of my housemates at the time, he worked in a local restaurant. And one of the waiters there had a fight coming up, this MMA fight. And my friend wanted to go. So I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll come along with you, see what it's about, have a little watch. And when I got there, it was uh, was a show called Made for the Cage uh, over here in Newcastle in uh, the northeast. And I got there and just the crowd, the atmosphere when you first walked in, the, the camaraderie with the fighters, the the intelligence and the, the it was something I'd never seen before, I guess, in sport with like athletes going from boxing to kickboxing to Muay Thai to jiu-jitsu, such like seamless flow in between different disciplines uh, within like the same bracket of a sport. And I instantly got the MMA bug. I was hooked. I was um and yeah, it sort of just really started from there. So the event finished um, and I found the one of the lads who fought in the main event on Facebook and I sent him a message and asked if I could do an article for the uni website. Uh, he, he agreed, so I did an interview with him, posted it on the university website and then um, I was approached by Made for the Cage to do a little bit of work for them. So I started doing that and then uh, in my final year I got access to a studio and started my own major outlet, like MMA major outlet, uh, called Fight and Talk. Um, so got started with that and that developed it initially it was a eight part sorry six part podcast and then I moved more into the shorter form journalism doing uh, videos 10 15 minutes with uh, athletes who had fights upcoming or athletes who had just won previous weeks um, and it all started from there then I started covering the likes of Bellator Cage Warriors and traveling around the UK covering them events and then earlier this year uh, I was approached by the IMAFs and asked if I would be interested in coming on board as a website contributor and yeah that's where we're at now. So if someone asks who interviews the interviewer that's me now. <laughs> that's you now yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay cool. Uh, do, you, do you have time to train yourself without this traveling and intervening? Yeah so it came it was my first podcast guest um, Cal Pacino Eleanor uh, uh, Bellator, he previously fought on against James Gallagher in their last fight. Um, and Cal is from the Northeast, and I'd done an interview with him, and he'd asked me, was I interested at all in training? It was never something I'd done before, and I was enjoying the university lifestyle, shall we say. So there was a lot of parties, a lot of takeaway food, so I wasn't in the best best of shapes. Um, and, yeah, I decided to give it a go, and it's, yeah, it's just the striking at the minute I'm doing. I'm, you know, nowhere near even a decent amateur level, but it's something that I'm doing once, twice a week. Well, not at the minute, um, but yeah, once, twice a week, hitting pads, trying a little bit of sparring every now and again. And I think it's something, especially 
as a media member, I think it's too easy for us sometimes to criticise athletes without actually understanding what's happening. So for me, I thought it was vitally important to get in that cage myself and start learning the different disciplines. And I think it gives you a different perspective, especially when you're covering the sport, as to certain positions, especially in the ground game. That was something for the first, I'd say, probably six to ten months. It was something that I didn't have any experience in at all. And I was watching a fight go to the ground and realising that until I'd seen somebody tap, I hadn't saw the submission coming. And so that was something that I wanted to develop in myself to give myself a better understanding of the sport for then ultimately covering it. Yeah, that's uh, that's very right because um, uh, I mentioned, you know, being as a coach and former athlete myself, uh, it's it's very bad impression when sometimes you have a commentator on a journalist who ha- who is not trained and he doesn't see in most of the things that you know someone who trains the fight and uh, you can see that from uh, his covering uh, of the fight so it's it's really important you know, to to be at least involved in the sports at, at least for fun because that let lets you know see what's actually going on. Yeah, I think it's something that's important as well, and it gives not necessarily more respect, but it's something that I think an athlete that is at the top level appreciates slightly more. If you are not even competing yourself, but training and trying to teach yourself by doing the sport, I think for especially these top level athletes, and when they're looking, and I approach lots of athletes for interviews, and I think it's nice for them to see that I'm not just somebody sitting behind the computer screen and working away, and well, when they work, let's say, for 12 weeks of a fight to then get submitted in the first round, I'm not then jumping on them straight away with no sort of background or idea on what's happened in that fight. Yeah, yeah, that, 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 that's for sure. Uh, so we, we were chatting like quite, quite a bit uh, around the situation in the UK compared to here in Australia because uh, you took this uh, brief interview from from me for for the uh, Queensland Open that we just did. So, what's the situation now at at, at your end? <laughs> Not good. In <laughs> <laughs> short, it's uh, so yes, we got put in the lockdown March 2020. So we're coming up to a year now. Um, when the lockdown initially hit, it was everything shut apart from essential retail, so your food shops, grocery shops, and uh, hospitals and the likes. Uh, we were in that for around six months, which took us up to September. Um, and then we had, I think it was like a two, three week respite where gyms could open up again and people could train and we'd go and see our friends and socialize, mix households. That was something that was massive. We, I, I hadn't saw my grandparents, my elderly grandparents for, I believe it was about seven months at that point because we weren't allowed to mix two households. Um, then, yes, after September, we got put back into another lockdown, same as the first one that came about in March, where no training for athletes unless you were professional. Um, in that, until December, we got, I think it was five or six days leeway in uh, around Christmas time. And then, yeah, a few weeks back, start of the year, we got put back into our third lockdown, um, which was, again, the same as March last year, where... We have a roadmap for the end of this lockdown, which is meant to be June the 21st, but uh, we wait and see. There's another variant of the virus um, currently in the UK. Uh, the government are, well, as they have been throughout the whole thing, slow on the uptake. So it's a case of we had six people come in with a new variant. Five of them they've managed to track, the six they haven't. Um, so we're still now very wary that that June the 21st date will come around and that actually we'll get back to normal with that. Um, the likes of your amateurs haven't been able to train at all. Um, professional athletes and uh, mixed martial artists are now allowed to train as it's, of course, work for them. So they're allowed to work. Um, but yeah, it's it's been a rough year, especially for the domestic scene and something that I'm sure you'll appreciate as well as a coach that especially your young amateurs that are coming up or your amateurs who are just about to turn pro, that last 18 month before they either make that step into the cage for the first time or before they pull on them forearms gloves for the first time is vital important for their development. And this massive layoff, I think, could have 
quite a big effect on how we see the progression of our amateur athletes over the next two, three years. Yeah, well, that's that, that that's devastating for the sport, and I not necessarily agree with all the measures they take, but uh, no, it's 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 very hard to you know to to work with that. And uh, uh, we had like a hard walk down here in Melbourne, uh, and uh, I have colleagues there who are working there, so there was not a wall to train like and together. Like I was also like uh, here in Queensland, I was my gym. And I'm about to reopen soon uh, on a new place for, for the same reason. Like, uh, and uh, uh, luckily, I was, I kind of, you know, I had a feeling and I was, you know, like, uh, I kind of foreseen the thing. So I, I quit my my rent and I, I, I canceled my rent and I stopped it just before they actually walked it. So it didn't really worst, uh, worst much, you know, but uh, there was, um, I had like, I had like a two months gap to was not able to train. Then we practically now like since then uh, uh, we train in the garage, like old Eastern European style, which doesn't bother me. I'm kind of used to it, but uh, and uh, luckily the, the guys that uh, I train, I was only the guys who compete. Uh, they adapted to it. So now like uh, now now we're about to move to, to a bigger place. But yeah, it, it was rough for everyone, especially you know, like big gyms and people who are in like one of the biggest gyms in in melbourne i think uh uh, uh you know kid dale mm-hmm. i think uh one of their gyms they had to close was a massive gym with a, like 10 meters wide cage and like one of the biggest gym in Melbourne. they, they was forced to close forever it was you know very hard and they're very very well developed gym but unfortunately they think put put an end to, to this like very very sad yeah it's it's been a very sad state of affairs with that that's happened a lot over here where there's gyms that have been around maybe 20 years and you see in the social media that the coach is posting that he's had to close the doors and won't be able to reopen and one of the biggest cases that or one of the most publicized cases especially over here was uh, the gym that philip Mulpita's at it's one of the sbg gyms of course sbg synonymous with conor mcgregor john kavanagh and that gym was going to have to close but conor mcgregor heard about this and trained with philip Mulpita for years and conor stepped in and saved that gym but it it got to a point where it wasn't then just a case of these gyms with five six maybe athletes in you're talking about gyms with tens and tens of people in there maybe you know upwards of 60 regular competing athletes and they were also getting struck by this lockdown um one promotion one of the biggest in Europe, Cage Warriors, um, I'm not sure if you, yeah, you're familiar with, um, Graham Boyle and Ian Dean and that whole team deserve so much credit. So the day, so the UK was told midweek back March last year that it was this certain Sunday, I think it was the 20th of March, 22nd of March around then, that as of midnight that night, the whole country's in lockdown and, and Cage Warriors were meant to have a show the night before. So... This announcement came on the Tuesday. They had the show on the Saturday. The show was originally meant to be in London. The venue then cancelled on Cage Warriors and said, we can't host your show. So within the space of five days, Cage Warriors managed to find a new venue, move all their athletes to this new city. They moved to Manchester instead of London, and they still managed to put the show on. And it was the last live sporting event in the UK before the national lockdown. Graham Boylan, of course, the chairman, then went to... Um, the government and said look this is how we're going to run events from now on these are the precautions we're going to put in place here's the protocols and they managed to get government back in for events so since we've been in lockdown the cage warriors team have managed to make sure their athletes can train so if they're needed for a fight they can fight they've managed to put on six shows last year in september and december and that government backing has now continued into this year which means even though we're still in another lockdown in two weeks' time, they're allowed to put on another three shows back to back to back because from the very start, Graham knew it was important to keep these athletes fighting, keep the promotion alive as well, and done everything in their power to keep things going for both themselves and for the athletes and for the fans. And yeah, they've done a tremendous job. So how they're doing it? I guess uh, there's no uh, uh, no public, uh, just the fighters and coaches uh, closed doors. 
uh, pay-per-views and stuff that was, I suppose what they're doing? Yeah, so uh, Cage Warriors have a deal with um, UFC Fight Pass. So all their events are broadcast live on UFC Fight Pass. Their first event in September, if you were fighting on the Thursday, you had to show up at the hotel on the Sunday before. You had to self-isolate by yourself, no coaches, no anything, in your room for 48 hours. You'd then get your COVID result back, and if you were negative, they then had a section of the hotel that was purely for Cage Warriors staff and fighters. They then obviously had to cut the weight, cut the weight, weigh-in, that was fine. The weigh-ins were stagnated as well, so not everybody was in the same room at the same time. Um, pass that second COVID test after you've weighed in, that's fine, you've cleared the fight. And in the venue, I believe they were only allowing the fight that was in the cage and the fight next in the whole arena at one time, all behind closed doors but to really try and keep everybody separate. So they've, do, they've done so much work to make sure they could continue with their events. Um, in the September show, I know they'd spoken to the government and the government had allowed them to do the rapid COVID tests. So it meant they weren't having to isolate for 48 hours the week of the fight. They would go down, get put in a room, rapid COVID test, 15 minutes later, if you were positive, great, you're allowed in the bubble. If you were negative, you can't fight. Sweet. Well, yeah, it's it's not easy. It's a lot of organization to do a bubble like that. Uh, uh, I, I I made a, made an episode like uh, you know a couple of months before with uh, the fight edition. Uh, uh, Jason he works with uh, with UFC. He he's now like um, uh, works with uh, uh, what's the New Zealand team, the City Kickboxing. But uh, so what they do in UFC, they're creating this bubble so that the fires actually cut weight under the uh, supervision of uh, the UFC, the editions and uh, uh, and chefs and doctors and everything. So like everything happens actually on place. It's not like like before you do it with your own coaches and stuff, which is from one uh, one point of view is is nice because they kind of uh, supervise the, the athletes because you know, as a as a fight athlete, you're keen to go to extremes. You know, especially with the weight cut and stuff. So they kind of you know like now it's that's more measured, more scientifically safe. Uh, sometimes I think once I was listening to his podcast, he has a very good podcast by the way. Uh, once or twice they had to just stop a fighter from cut from cutting and like cancel the fight because he it's not healthy for him to make it, which. Uh, very early we happen with fire and the coach like you're just gonna push it through you know just to you know just to make it but uh which is uh good for for professional fighters unfortunately amateur fighters are, are not so lucky and uh they they cannot they cannot afford uh shows who are, who are working with uh, with amateur fighters they cannot afford so much because it's like they're not making so much uh, and uh I guess that's that's very hard, especially in UK. Like I know uh, I have a fight. I had a fight in UK like back in the days, and uh, I they had, since uh, day one, you know, like the beginning of the sport when it's like pretty much a you know very uh, not not so widely recognized. They have huge amateur amateur scene, like a lot of small and tiny like all kind of shows. Uh, very good strikers, like traditionally from uh, from UK, you know, like this. Uh, uh, traditional like uh, uh, English boxing school and made a transition very good in all striking sports. You know this um, uh, knowledge of the striking coaches, uh, transiting kickboxing. Kickboxing is very strong in UK. Generally, like, UK guys has very good striking. Uh, grappling scenes now is picking up. Uh, I told you when I was was chatting. Uh, no leading to this. Uh, I have a guy who is now uh, training, competing there. He's my student, Stefan Petrov. He's competing in Polaris. Now he's also had these troubles that you're talking me about. Uh, uh, they're not really able to train. Hopefully his girlfriend is training, so he, they, he kind of managed, you know, to train together and to, you know, to push this conditioning all the time. Like he said, like, since we walked down, I've never been in better shape because I'm doing so much conditioning because I cannot roll and spa. Yeah, that's, well, uh, do you guys have any, uh, do they tell you like any time when they're gonna, uh, they're gonna release the, the measures or something? Do you have any roadmap with that? 
Um, yes, so the roadmap takes us up to June the 21st with no um, issues, but there's no word yet on when we're going to be back to full capacity in any sort of shows. Um, football, soccer events are naturally going to get the go-ahead first as an outdoor. That's going to be another massive issue and something that's been pivotal throughout this coronavirus pandemic in the UK, that with... MMA being indoors over here, I mean, an outdoor event would be lovely, but in July, I'm sure we'll still be having rain over here. So it's, you know, what can you do? Um, but with the, all the events being indoors, it restricts how many fans you could allow in, if at all, even more. Um, so we've got no time frame on when fans will be allowed back into the event. Well, here... Uh, well, why can you have way better better weather than the UK? <laughs> Uh, uh, like when we we was in Walkdown XFC, which is the biggest promotion here. I don't know if you've heard about them, but they're the biggest promotion in Australia. They're doing like pro and amateurs uh, in all states. They did couple of uh, outdoor shows with you know like uh, with with chairs, uh, space chairs and all that. So there was this, there was a, they were able to pull it out. But yeah, it's I guess it's not easy in. Uh, in UK and uh, in Europe in general, where like, what's that? Okay, we it's just springtime coming now. It was yeah. kind of win winter time up, up to now. Uh, I know in Bulgaria where I'm from, uh, uh, they had uh, the gyms closed for uh, I think for a month or something, but they just reopened. But uh, it was very strange because what happened in Bulgaria, like it's Eastern Europe, right? So everything is like very very messed up so uh the uh, the fitness gym was closed but the fight gym was open <laughs> yeah it's yeah. the european way we can fight but you cannot go lift <laughs> <laughs> but like even that in the uk we had that so when we got put into a leveled system so a level one level or tier system sorry tier one tier two tier three and if you were in tier three you could train indoors as long as it wasn't a group activity but a group count is more than two people. So if somebody's training for a fight, they're not going to get the freshman rounds. They're not going to get jits in with several different athletes. It's It's been a really tough time. Um, Bellator handled things differently again. I know you had Ryan Spillane on a little while ago. Of course, he is now signed to Bellator from the IMMAF. So he's now, he, was, he should have really made his pro debut last year, but because of the way that everything's played out, Bellator signed a host of um, European talent two years ago um, and last year they only had four European shows within the space of two weeks or five European shows sorry in the space of two weeks but there were so many athletes then left out because there simply wasn't enough room on the cards again they were behind closed doors they'd done four shows in Italy and they'd done one show in Paris when France opened up a little bit more um, but yeah it, it's been it's been a very different time covering the sport even doing a lot more I mean it's slightly different for us of course we know the sides of the world but usually with fighters in the UK I'd just travel to their gym and interview them there but everything's had to be on Skype or on Zoom and yeah it's it's something I hope we don't have to get used to for too much longer yeah well I think it's kind of you know like at least from from our end like uh it's kind of you know there is white in the end of the tunnel I hope like uh Bulgaria is getting better unfortunately i have friends in greece they're still very bad uh but i think it's easing up of in most countries you know the initial panic about, about the virus is kind of you know fading out and uh you know hopefully finally you know under the pressure of public you know like uh the measures are getting more reasonable because at the end of the day uh the virus is not not going anywhere like uh and uh people are able to get their risks, right? So uh, as long as you know that uh, there's something there, it's it's your responsibility if you're going to take measures, or you're going to take the risk. Of, I, I believe that people who are like uh, more prone to, you know, more in danger from this virus, like elderly people and uh, people with uh, certain health issues, they have to be more careful, but you cannot keep every, the whole planet walked uh, because of the virus. And it's... And I think it's that there's like a massive realization that in the end of the day, the virus is not as deadly that everyone thought, not everyone is dying left or right. So 
uh, I have a lot of friends in Bulgaria who actually you know like uh, had the virus, went through it. Uh, my my own coach, uh, family, they all of them had it. His wife, his son, his son is also training. Uh, he say he probably had it. He never felt about his he's too tough, you know, for a virus. But uh, yeah, they they had it. They went through it for a week, and yeah, it sucks. But you you go on the other end. So. It's it's not a big issue. One of my training partners, a very good friend, uh, we actually had a, like uh, quite a lot of argument uh, about the virus because he had it, he got panic, and uh, we had a bit of argument about the virus stuff. Uh, he was smell and taste. And then, then when he was very panic, and then they got back. So it's it's just another sickness, you know. Like uh, and in every day you cannot. You cannot walk upon it for, for a fool. Like it's a bad fool, but in the end days it's a fool, and then people get over it. So I I hope that uh, more more reason will come will come in place, and you know things will start easing up like everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're stuck in an interest level as well, especially with the professional athletes. And going back to something you were talking about before, and weight cutting. Hamza Chimaev and Leon Edwards are two prime examples of this, where these are two athletes who are at the very very top of their game, very very peak physical fitness but because they will be cutting weight on the lead up to their fight you see with both Leon and Hamza we had that extended period of COVID I know Hamza came out the other day I know since then he said he was emotional and he didn't mean it but he was contemplating retirement over it it's that horrible catch 22 almost now where is it worth for a while just saying to these top athletes look don't cut the weight you normally cut by all means, cut a couple of kilos, but don't be overdoing it because then you're lowering your immune system, weakening that immune system. And it, we're stuck in an awkward position with that. Um, back Bellator, Newcastle, February uh, 2019, I was fortunate enough, one of the athletes invited me into his room because I'd never seen a weight cut before. And he invited me in. Um, and he was cutting down to 61 kilo, 135 pound bantamweight. And um, he got on the scales that night and the night before the weigh-ins and he had 7.2 kilogram cut and you think that during these times if one of them corner men is asymptomatic with the virus and passes it on to him it could be so much more damaging to him it's i'm not a big fan either of the ufc booking the way they did with leon and hamzat a fight two weeks after they've had it three weeks after they've had it because you don't know what these long-term effects are going to be i completely agree with you that it is just a, a slightly worse flu. But I, I think some promotions could be doing more with their athletes to make sure that they're not cutting these dramatic amounts of weights. I mean, weight cutting's an issue, and I think it's going to be for as long as the sport exists. But especially in this time when there is a virus going around, it may be wise just to knock it on the head a little bit. Uh, well, uh, with the weight cut... Uh... I might be biased, right? Because I, I myself, I'll be cutting eight kilos, like uh, as a standard. Uh, I was. I, I don't. I don't say everyone should cut eight kilos. I uh, apparently have this. Uh, I was genetically lucky. I had no problem cutting eight kilos. That was my so, standard. Standard trick. Eight, I was eight kilo the night before. Sorry. Uh, say a week before. Right. Okay. With with the water warding, so I was normally, uh, I was uh, competing in kickboxing purpose on 67. Then I when I grow, grow up slightly, I went up to 71. Uh, that was my weight when I was in the national team. Uh, like I was doing K1 on 71. That was my main style. And uh, then uh, when I got in the Sambo national team, I was. Uh, well, I was competing in three national teams in the same time, so Sambo, Sanda, and uh, and uh, Sambo, uh, and and kickboxing. Uh, so, but on Sambo, the weight was uh, 68, then 75. So it was fairly small for 75. And on grappling rules, uh, uh, you know, the weight difference makes makes a lot of a lot of difference in the fight. So I was too high for 75, uh, and my grappling was not as good as you know. As later, so I was had to cut to 68. So when that's when my my travels was because like my fight weight was 71. So I had to make a compromise to cut two more extra kilos, which is a bit harder for me. But yeah, 
you know that that was that that was quite extreme. But the thing is, uh, with the weight cutting, uh, what I want to say is, uh, it's very hard to restrict uh, uh, the athletes from weight cutting because that's part of the sport. It's always going to be a cut part of the sport. But I'm all about more science involved in, into this one. I I cannot recommend more like. Uh, 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 my friend, the dietitian, uh, you can find him on the internet, uh, and uh, he's he's working in UFC now, but he has a very good podcast where he explained this for everyone, how it's done and how it's properly done for the science that you have to look for, for, you know, if you if you lose too, too much weight and stuff like that. Because uh, the truth is, uh, and I tell this by my experience, if you undercut too much, it actually damages your ear. Uh, your performance. You you can actually become sore despite that you're white. You just drain, and you cannot be so exposed. So there is like a there is a limit. Something that I learned from him, by the way, and never thought about it is uh, it all weight cutting depends also uh, from your fighting style for a certain fight. So uh, it it might help if you if in a certain fight you're about to grapple, might help you know to to cut more weight to be heavy in the fight. But in the same time, if you if your your game plan is uh, more striking based in a certain fight, uh, weight cutting is not in your favor because it slows you down. And also, there is another uh, detrimental effect uh, uh, if you drain a bit the liquid in your skull that contains your brain, you're more prone to being dropped. So that's another thing that is dangerous for fighters who who cut weight. So I'm all about more science and less rules. Uh, not less rules, but uh, I don't like, uh, for example, what uh, 1FC is doing because the thing is, you know, they make this hydration test and stuff. But the thing is, if you understand weight cutting, it's very easy to cheat the hydration yeah. test. Okay, I won't say how to do it, but uh, you know, people who know how to how to cut weight, they have experience with that, they know how to cheat. So it's not a big deal. Like everyone is like uh, giving the props to 1FC for that, but. In reality, if you know how how to do it, it's very easy to cheat. Again, it's probably a step in the right direction, but in the same time, I would rather have have more knowledge involved between the fighters and coaches on amateur level because they cannot obviously like all of them afford like a fight dietitian on their head. It's not no, it's not it's not easy for amateur fighters, but really you know more knowledge and more understanding about the the way kind of process makes sense especially in in the environment like uh, mmf competition when you actually cut weight on the same day you fight it's it's way different than uh, than professional matches when you have like 24 hours recovery it's it's the day is very different and uh, you can actually you cannot actually cut so much weight it's i would say like it's not if you cut more than four percent with the uh, with the with competing on the same day, that's going to be detrimental for your performance. It's it's just very different. And uh, you know, on uh, tournaments like uh, like Oceania or like Worlds, I mean, fighters they they have to show up on the scales every day. Like yeah. They fight every day, so they have to maintain the the weight, let's say for a, for a week on the Worlds. So that that's absolutely different approach to, to weight cutting. Yeah, I think I, I don't even think I know the the idea, especially in the the pro game of introducing smaller um, differentiates between weight classes it could be an answer. But I don't think that is the case. I think if anything, then you're going to end up with possibly people cutting even more weight again, like a, a small welterweight if they brought in if they moved it to 165 and 175 and you've got a small welterweight, they're going to go well. I'll cut another two kilo to get down to the 165 pound. I think it possibly causes more sort of questions and answers. Yeah, that's exactly what I think about that's going to happen. Uh, if you introduce more weight classes, people are just going to cut for for the for more. What it realistically like uh, when you make any of those rules, you have to consider the mentality of the, of the fighters. Your fighters are special people. They they adjust with the rules and they always try you know, to to find find advantage and and that's fair in the end of the day you're fighting with another guy in the cage right so it's it's not the most healthy uh experience or like a hobby let's say so you're trying to get an advantage within the rules so fighters you always do that so it's not realistic to impose those rules rules and you know chasing fighters that's not realistic and 
won't won't happen. No, you cannot. Uh, if you have a, like, uh, let's say, you have a big fight card, you know, have ten fights, you cannot chase twenty fighters like two weeks before to see yeah. if they're cutting or not. It's just impossible for 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 a promotion from like a, you know like small scale. So realistically, it's it's all about you know like uh, fighters and coaches being being responsible for their health, knowing that this can damage their performance, knowing that uh, this can uh, uh, damage their long-term long-term development in the sport, and knowing how to do it right. So I'm all about that. But you know all those rules, people will just find a way you know just just to go around it. That that's what what has what's happening. It just that's how it works in fight game. Unfortunately, yeah. I I always find it really interesting as well when you look and you see. So there is a a person from Team Wales turning pro, Scott Pedersen. He won bronze at the Europeans in 2016. He's turning pro this year, and he, like so many others, has made the decision that in stepping up and getting that extra 24 hours to drop a weight class. So he was lightweight, moving to professional levels. He's now dropping to featherweight. That's something that's really really common to see. And I think it's normally quite interesting, especially with the likes of Scott, who's had quite a bit of time to transition from the amateur to pro game, the difference in their body from an amateur level lightweight to a professional uh, featherweight. Yeah, true, true. But again, uh, the thing is professionals can afford to do more stuff, while amateurs, uh, they cannot also like uh, something else to consider. Amateur athletes very often have a day job or something else to do. Mm-hmm. So that's some additional work that very often is uh, underseen, you know, f- from coaches because like you cannot really you know like follow what the guy is doing during the day. But let's say if he's doing some kind of construction work and carrying bricks all, all day, you know that that's that's actually a work. So uh, you have to consider that for for, for this guy, you know, like uh, you cannot like uh, drain him, you know, to to cut ten kilos and to find the same weight while he's he's working leading to the fight and then he's like pretty much like. Uh, bag of bones just drop him in the cage and yeah. <laughs> to see what happens <laughs> yeah it's 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 not easy when you're amateur you have to balance so much things so much responsibilities what's that like at pro level in australia then just on something you mentioned there um about do you have many professional mixed martial artists who have to juggle full-time jobs and um their mma or generally do you find that there's more if you're a professional mixed martial artist in australia that that's all like that that is your work or do you have people who do both work full-time and train well as everywhere else you know uh there there's some people on high level for like example robert whitaker and all like those guys uh alex volkanovsky who train full-time but uh realistically most of the guys as, as numbers they both work and train which it's not ideal, but unfortunately, no, that's right in the sport. There are people in UFC who work and train. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we've uh, most recent example, and it comes back to the construction you just mentioned there. Perry Goodwin for uh, Morgan Charrier for the um, Cage Warriors featherweight belt. I know Perry really well from the same area. And Perry get, gets up in the morning at like five, six o'clock in the morning, goes and does scaffolding for 12 hours, and then goes drives 45 minutes to train it team fish tank and then drives 45 minutes home and that's his day and then he's got a cut weight on top of that and then he's got to prepare for a world title fight on that and it's it's a lot of juggle yeah and it's taxing on the body it's taxing on the body and uh uh he, the thing is uh i feel that on on me like uh, up to certain age you're pretty much immortal you just go but slowly slowly with the age you know you you know, it starts getting into days. Uh, I don't know if you heard days on this uh, Viking legend. You know, the it's about Thor. He goes, uh, uh, he goes to see the giants, and they say, "Oh, you're too small." Uh, but to prove how strong you are, we're gonna make you wrestle uh, an old lady. So they take a, an old lady, a granny, and uh, he say, "Oh, I want to wrestle a granny. I'm strong. You know, I want someone who is real points." They say, "No, no, no." Try to beat the granny. And so he start wrestling with the granny, but the granny is like very hard to beat. You know, he wrestles, 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 and he's not able to beat. And in the end, it happens that the granny is actually uh, the time, the age. So you cannot beat the age. It's always, <laughs> it's always slowly drains you with all your powers. So yeah, 
it's very wise you know you can see that you know like you're immortal when you're young and you feel that you can beat everything but with the time you know and you know start draining a bit you know maybe you have a couple of you know injuries that kind of slow you down so it's 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 taxing on the body so this have to be considered with from from the coaches as well so it's it's a tough game but it's it's fun anyway so so let's uh speaking about the uh the transition amateur professional uh you have a very good overview over the uh the scene in uk uh and and in the area around uh so what see what would be your view for a proper proper transition for from grassroots to amateur to professional level as someone who follows the sport closely yeah um it's one of those where it can really differ from athlete to athlete or potentially even from gym to gym. Certain gyms have certain things in place and want their athletes to grow certain ways. Um, what I find is we've got a lot, especially in the Northeast uh, where I'm based, there's a lot of guys who fight is the C-class and B-class before they have a couple C-class, B-class bouts, um, which is C-class, no head strikes, just body strikes, no strikes on the floor. Um and you slowly see these athletes developing. I'm fortunate enough to commentate on a show in the northeast, and it's quite nice. Sorry. So sorry to certainly wrap you. C class, uh, you don't have head strikes standing, like. Uh... Correct. Yeah. Ah, okay. So, so these are very, very small children. Um, and then obviously you move on to B class, and it's the slightly slight change in rules. Um, but of course, still wearing, uh, big gloves. Um. And then your amateurs, they can sort of start or do start anywhere around that 17-ish mark, sometimes a little bit younger. Um, but what the UK, and it's something, I mean, MMA is not necessarily regulated over here, but it's something that I think a lot of um, promoters are very conscious of, is matching certain athletes against each other. So making sure that you're not going to put in somebody making their amateur debut against somebody who's had... 16 amateur bouts and they've won 12 of them um, and a lot of it comes down now especially in the UK and the sort of surrounding areas to the coaching and the head coach being involved in taking sensible matchups for these athletes I think especially at the amateur level you get varying level sorry varying like amounts of appearances on the amateur scene with some athletes so you may get some who only fight three or four times as an amateur and then turn pro then you have other athletes uh, a, a boy from the northeast called robbie brown he's had i believe he's on 26 uh, amateur fights now and he makes his pro debut in april um uh, even down to the shows it's going to depend so cage warriors again have this academy system um where it's amateur only shows uh, amateur only bouts i believe which Get the fans used to being in front of maybe a bit of a bigger audience and growing with that because when you're under them lights when you make that walk it, it could be intimidating especially that first time um so yeah it, it's interesting how the scene develops over here because if especially the likes of your cage warriors or or bellator perfect case in point is ryan Splain, if they see somebody early doors who they think they've got something you'll find you look at ryan his pro debut is now going to be on Bellator. You've got several athletes who made their pro debuts on the likes of Cage Warriors. Uh, Leah McCourt from SPG uh, Ireland, SPG Charlestown, she made her debut on um, Cage Warriors. um, It's an interesting route and it's so different for everyone that it's hard to give a specific they do X, Y and Z because so many fighters are so different. Yeah, uh... No, I was interesting for your opinion because uh, uh, I explained the way I'm 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 doing this and uh, you know as a pathway and uh, and that kind of you know like uh, gives a kind of you know relatively clear you know way. So if you're just jumping into the MMA sport from some other sport where you you get in, so you you come to this system. So I just uh, you know I'm just collecting opinions so I can yeah. adjust this like accordingly. Absolutely. I think the, the International Mixed Martial Arts Federation plays a massive part in that as well, especially in Britain. Um, we've got a lot of athletes who 
So they may have five, six fights on the amateur scene, then apply uh, or take part in the open day for the get selected for the team. Um, Scott Pedersen, perfect example, making his debut on Cage Warriors. So he competed, I believe he had seven amateur fights, then first took part in the uh, International Mixed Martial Arts Federation World Championships in 2015, I want to say, and got knocked out in the first round. So for him, it was like, okay, I need to go back and reevaluate. He took another couple of fights on the local circuit, came back the next year, made it to the quarterfinals, went away again, had another couple of bouts on the local scene, come back to the Europeans, and that was where he won his bronze medal in 2016. And that, w- that for him, was a way of him gauging his development for turning professional, because 99% of the time, if you're just going to be fighting in the UK on domestic shows, you're going to only be facing other British fighters. Something that Scott really tips his hat to his confidence going into this professional game is the experience he's got through the IMAFs fighting other top-level opposition from different countries because training is different from country to country. Certain athletes specialise in certain things. You mentioned it before with the British and their stand-up, their boxing. The Russians, I mean, you look at Khabib, you look at Zabit, it's that grappling, that wrestling style. And that's something Scott credits the IMAFs for. The confidence he's now got going into his pro game because he's had the opportunity to see what these other top, top level amateurs are like from elsewhere in the world. And from that, he believed he could gauge where he'll be at as a professional and when would be the right time for him to make the professional leap. Uh, Robbie Brown, who I mentioned before, 26 amateur fights, but he would like to have a well, prior to COVID, would like to have had a run at the International Mixed Martial Arts Federation, either the Europeans or the Worlds, to test himself and see where he is on there as well. So yeah, there's a lot of athletes um, that their final amateur bouts over here are on the IMAF circuit before turning pro. Well, I think that's the right pathway, and uh, that's something that they want to, to, you know, to educate the scene here in Australia because. What they find out from uh, from uh, traveling the uh, the Western scene, like uh, speaking uh, as a guy like born in Russia and like uh, trained uh, tra- grew up in Bulgaria, uh, we are used to fighting tournaments uh, because before MMA, like uh, especially in, in in Bulgaria, similar to Russia, Sambu uh, scene is very big, so Sambu is very popular. And in combat Sambu, you, it's very similar to. Uh, what IMF tournament is, you fight on the tournament. World Championship is always one day. One of my most terrible, you know, like competition, I mean, like uh, hard on, hard competition was uh, World Championships in Samu because you might have five five fights for a day until, you know, you get to, to the medals. And they're all with tough guys and all, all in the same days. And you have like uh, someone from Russia, from Belarus, from Dagestan, all these like te- terrible guys, they're, they're good fighters. And uh, the thing is, it's a very different approach, different mentality than uh, uh, what I find here in Australia. And I believe it's very similar in UK, uh, where the amateur fighters fight single fight for, for a day, for a night. So they pretty much approach the same way as uh, professionals do. So they, they have like the previous day, do they do the cut and then they fight on the next day. But uh, uh, in the same time, that's I find out this is very hard if you're a good amateur, because uh, you have a hard time finding fights. So what happens is, uh, if you're a good amateur, uh, uh, and if you're lucky, you might get three, four fights a year, right? While in Russia, uh, a regular guy, or like uh, even my, my team in Bulgaria, you know, like before, you know, all the lockdowns and stuff, uh, we have these uh, amateur tournaments and also combat some. So like healthy guys who are not injured, they fight, fight every other month. And you do four fights for a tournament if you're winning. So for a year, let's say a guy who is training somewhere in Russia, uh, he probably makes like uh, 15, 20 fights, might be more. If you exclude grappling and, and other stuff, you, which you don't count as a real competition. Why the guys here, they get like four four times less experience with those single fights, just as a cage time. And uh, I think that's why it's important you know, to have this uh, 
tournaments like like we did here in Queensland. So the guys can actually get those experience regularly. And it's like like everything dangerous if if you do it often enough in uh, you know in uh, in you know it's it's uh, how to say measure tricks so you get used to it. It's like playing a video game. No more you play, less you die. And it's the same with fun, you know. More you do, more you know how to how to defend yourself, and you get better into it. So uh, if we have like regular tournaments, so I'm hoping like uh, I hope like we we have like less uh, odds this year, like uh, work, meaning like lockdowns and stuff like we already talked, and we're able to run uh, an open tournament here in, in our state, and hopefully we start doing this in the other states slowly when they they open. Uh, at least two more times and uh, we do this regularly like the guys have like three four tournaments on walkway where they can actually know go fight more often you're going to fight the same people right in an yeah. in area in a group but you're getting this uh cage time and then uh, after two years with uh you know having like 30 40 fights you're way different amateur than you were before and uh Hopefully, you know, from, from what depends from us here, like uh, I, I'm, I'm lucky, you know, to have the, the support of the Federation. They, they, they share the vision. Hopefully, with the next two years, I hope like we will be able to climb even high in IMF. Like now, Australia is on the fifth place, but I think uh, with having this uh, chance for the guys to grow up within, within the IMF, uh, rule set and uh, an environment and getting used to you know like cutting the same day and finding finding their you know their their range of of weight and uh, you know and, and performance weight because there is also trick with that you need a couple of competitions to to find out on which weight you actually perform better and to choose your weight class especially if, if in this case when you're cutting and finding the same day so some people can cut a bit more some people cannot cut, cut so much. So like uh, I mentioned before, like I would say four four percent, just like an average. But there are some people who cannot cut. Some people like just perform better without any cut. So some people might not have to cut at all. Just just go the way you are, like your performance way. It's it takes a couple of tournaments for for a young and upcoming athlete to find his own, you know, golden range of performance. And you have to be honest with that. You know, was did my cut undermine my, my performance or not? Of course, you have to involve your coaches with that to find it out. But uh, you need these regular tournaments when you're well to do your mistakes, right? Okay, you messed up my wrestling. You messed up your wake up. It's all right. Come after a couple of months, make the adjustment. Try it. Right? Try your own circuit before you go to, you know, to international, before you go to... Right, so what depends from us, we're doing. Hopefully, we have, have the chance, you know, to to keep, keep doing it this year. Absolutely. And I think the amateur level is a perfect place to make their mistakes as well. It's all too often you see maybe some athletes turning professional too soon in their career when they haven't ironed out exactly what weight they want to be fighting at or exactly how much weight they should be cutting. They then manage to get themselves onto a major promotion like a Cage Warriors or a Bellator. They lose two fights then against this higher opposition, European or world opposition. And then they're back to square one. And it's as if the years they then spent building up to that point were lost because they hadn't done the work in the amateurs and through the likes of an IMA platform to find out exactly where they need to be. You're absolutely right. And uh, I would say at least that's what I'm telling to the guys I train. Uh, get an international medal for from IMF and then you can think about turning pro. Because uh, as a coach, uh, I want... And that it, I was always looking, you know, to, uh, you know, to win the world championships. Okay, I was never world champion, but you know that that was the goal that is is guiding guiding me as a process and, and as a coach. So you always have to think about yourself, about someone who wants to become world champion. So if you want to become world champion, what you have to do, you have to take your steps. So once you become world champion as an amateur, then you can turn pro and start climbing. There is another advantage in that, you know. IMF rules are, are, are way uh, softer on the body and uh, now with the, with the referees getting better and better, they're way better in protecting the fighters. So if you 
hold yourself and turn professional a bit later after you become like uh, IMF world champion you have easy passing to big promotions like Bellator in UFC but the advantage is you won't be that hurt as someone who was climbing to the UFC as professional because uh, guys like that they've hard, hard, uh, fight hard fights you know uh, generate injuries which are always part of the sport and the moment they actually get into UFC and they are like uh, 30 plus years they have only five years you know of good performance to try to climb to the top which sometimes is just you know speaking about like wrestling with all with an old lady lady of age might be might be beating you just because you you're you're coming uh, uh down down of your peak you spend your peak while you're trying to climb to the usc while you uh, climbing up through amateur circle like imf uh you're still far from your peak until you become world champion so like you when you get to, to these big promotions you have the time and your body is uh, is healthy enough you can actually make it to ufc champion and i think that's that's the proper way to climb to you know to, to this level i i think mohammed makayev is a perfect example of that of course former pound for pound number one he well i believe 20 year old 21 year old now and already yeah. signed to brave four pro fights and I mean, the UFC were looking before he'd even finished his amateur tenure. Uh, he'd done his building, he'd done his learning on that at uh, International Mixed Martial Arts Federation stage. Got signed to a big promotion. Fighting, uh, fighting as as a as a youngster, he was fighting eighty to twenty one. Uh, he yeah. only he only fought in adults here in Oceania. Yeah, he won it and then he turned pro. So he was not even fighting adult. He's super safe, super 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 good. And has no injuries, and now he turned pro. I think he did. He did perfectly. Yeah, me too. Yeah, sweet. Anything else you want to add, Jake? Nah, I think we're good, sir. It's yeah, it's been good. It's good to hear how things are going on in inside the world where you've actually dealt with this all right and being able to put on shows like you did and the open like you did uh, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Well, knocking wood. We'll, we'll get better and also on your, your part of the world we will get better so we can we can have in, now in the international championships uh, I'm working towards the Europeans and towards the worlds uh, also like I have a youngster who uh, won actually you know the uh, he won Oceanic kids and uh, he won uh, uh, now again on the open so I'm looking for him to compete on on the worlds for kids uh, hopefully they, they they will happen and we'll be able to to compete. We have a couple of guys who are actually going to uh, prepare now in Russia in order to compete on the worlds. So hopefully we have world championships this year, so we will be able, you know, to to show for what we have to. Let's hope so. Uh, can you please uh, tell uh, how people can follow you? You are doing you have a very interesting YouTube channel doing interviews with with fighters, uh, all your socials and stuff. Yes, no problem. So my Twitter is Jake Smith Journal, like journalist, J-O-U-R-N-O. And my Instagram is Jake underscore fight and talk. Um, and the fight and talk one is just fight and talk. And that's the name of the YouTube channel as well. So yeah, I interview UFC, Bellator, Cage Warriors, all sorts of athletes over there. Um, and there's some long form podcasts on there as well, if that's your type of thing. Beautiful, I'm looking for it. Uh... You got uh, send me links, please, so I can put them in the description, so people can easily just click uh, to them and uh, follow. And thanks for your time. I will do. Not a problem, sir. Thanks for having us on. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to the Faisal podcast. Subscribe in your podcast app to receive the next episode. Stay strong and stay safe. This episode is brought to you by Tambourine Spring World. Visit tambourinesprings.com.au or call 0434-952-449 to order your water today. Tambourine Spring Water is a local business situated on Mount Tambourine. Their water is bottled at the source of their 163 meter deep privately owned spring. And Tambourine Springs, it's a matter of minutes from 
when the water is extracted from the ground to go into the bottle. They do not add any chemicals whatsoever to the drinking water, it only goes through filters to remove sand and sediments that come with the water. When you purchase your water from Tambourine Springs Water, you know you receive the best spring water Southeast Queensland has to offer from a local family on a mission to provide the best service and quality. Water companies are often blamed with a good reason for polluting the environment with plastic bottles. This is also not the case with Tambourine Spring Water. Your water is delivered to your door in 15 or 20 liter bottles and your used bottles are collected, disinfected and refilled again. So zero plastic waste goes to the environment. Me, my family and my team are also using Tambourine Spring Water. Once you drink real spring water for a while, you cannot drink anymore from the sink or any commercial waters from the supermarket because they stink and had have bad taste. Ridiculously enough, in Australia you can mix 50% of the water with tap water and label and sell it as spring water. This is not the case with tambourine spring water. I personally know the family who owns it and have been numerous times in their small factory to see my water being bottled straight from the spring after filtration process. Find out more at tambourinesprings.com.au or call 0434-952-449 to order your water today.